Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Around 10.30 on the night of September 6th, 1995, heavily armed police officers marched up a dark road in rural southwestern Ontario. They were on their way to confront a small group of First Nations protesters who were occupying a provincial park and campground. They were there to assert their claim to the land, which they believed contained sacred burial grounds. Over the next 30 minutes, chaos erupted. A Cattle and Stony Point band counselor was beaten unconscious. A school bus and a car were driven into police officers. And an activist was shot dead. He was the first Canadian killed in a land claims dispute in the 20th century. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is the history of the 90s. On this episode, a story about displacement, broken promises, and anger that could no longer be contained. This is the story of the Ipperwash crisis. To fully understand what happened in 1995, we have to go back even further, all the way back to 1942. That's when the Chippewa of Stony Point, who are part of the Anishinaabek Nation, were living on a small reserve beside Ipperwash Provincial Park. Ipperwash is in southwestern Ontario, on the south shore of Lake Huron, the third largest freshwater lake in the world. The area is stunning, with long stretches of beautiful beaches, beds of flint rock, and giant sand dunes. The Chippewa of Stony Point had been living on this small reserve since 1928, after selling the rest of their land to speculators who severely undervalued the property. The surrendered land was used to build summer homes and cottages and to create Ipperwash Provincial Park, a 148-acre campground. While Ipperwash Park was being built in 1932, the Stony Point Chippewa alerted government officials that the land contained burial grounds. The government promised the burial grounds would be fenced off and respected, but that never happened. This is an important piece of information, so I want you to hold on to that one for later. As World War II was being waged overseas, the Canadian federal government made another decision that impacted the Stony Point First Nation. So in 1942, in the spring, the Department of National Defense was looking for somewhere to create an army training facility. And to go after First Nations land at that time, it was a bit of a no-brainer for them, I guess. That's Monica Virtue. She's a researcher and a documentary filmmaker who's been working on projects related to Ipperwash for the past 15 years. She says using the Stony Point land for an army training facility served a much larger goal of the government. 
I'm trying to think of how to explain this, but at the time, the Department of Indian Affairs existed solely to assimilate First Nations people into the Canadian population. Although they had a what's called a fiduciary duty, that's not what they were doing. They were working their hardest to sell off Indigenous land as quickly as they could so that they could absorb First Nations people into the Canadian population as quickly as they could. After concluding that the reserve land occupied by the Stony Point First Nation would be an ideal location to train army cadets from southern Ontario before they went overseas to fight in the war, the federal government asked the 18 families living on the land if they would move. The First Nation said no. They voted against it. So then the Department of National Defense invoked the War Measures Act and took it forcefully. So this was against the will of the people. I mean, there's people still surviving today and they can tell you much better than I can. The impacts that had on the community, like it's still a very traumatic experience that when people talk about it, their voices shake. On Thanksgiving weekend in 1942, the frame houses of the Stony Point people were put up on jacks, loaded onto trucks, and moved down the highway to their new home. Ironically, some of the men from the Stony Point Reserve weren't even home when this happened because they were overseas fighting for Canada in the war. In the book One Dead Indian by Peter Edwards, he recounts the experience of Pearl George. She was 21 years old when Stony Point families were moved off their reserve. Pearl George had spent the day working in the family's large garden, and when she came home, their house was up on jacks and their two log cabins were gone. She said they weren't told anything about what was going on. Levi Johnson, another Stony Point resident, says his home wasn't moved. It was bulldozed flat. That's because it was the only brick house on the reserve and it was too heavy to put onto blocks. The small frame church at the Stony Point Reserve was also leveled. The families were moved to the nearby Kettle Point Reserve. The two nations were forced to merge and became the Kettle and Stony Point First Nation. The landscape at Stony Point is very sandy. Um, There's a lot of dunes and it's bush and sand. And if you go further west down to Kettle Point, it's a lot more swampy. So when the people were moved from Stony Point, their houses put up on the backs of flatbed trucks and the houses were delivered to Kettle Point, it wasn't the most ideal spot to put houses. And the Stony Point families lost their right to graze cattle, hunt or gather wood without getting the permission of the Kettle Point people while the Kettle Point people were forced to give up half their land. Not surprisingly, there was a lot of tension between the two bands. You're taking a First Nation that has a band membership of something like 2,300 people, and you're taking away half of their land base. So suddenly you've got all those people that have to live on the same piece of land. The Chippewa of Stony Point were promised the land would be returned. But again, that didn't happen. Instead, the federal government continued operating an army cadet camp in Ipperwash for the next several decades. The government was very sneaky about the way they worded things. They said within the documents that they would return Camp Ipperwash when the land was no longer needed. 
So that's a little vague. I know band members were under the impression that would happen directly after World War II ended, but that's not what happened. The Canadian government held on to Camp Pepperwash and kept using it throughout the Korean War. Right up until the 90s, they were using it as a cadet camp. I mean, the Department of National Defense, I'm sure, looked at it and thought they could justify what they were doing. And the legal terminology maybe supported them in a certain sense. But ethically, it was a much different story. So that brings us up to 1993, when about 100 members of the original Stony Point First Nation got tired of waiting to get their land back, and they reoccupied the east end of Camp Ipperwash. Out near the grenade ranges, people had started setting up pup tents and bringing in little trailers and then bigger trailers and then building little cabins. Some of those cabins are still there. You can see them decaying, but... It started slowly, and then by 1995, some teens were in a school bus and rammed the gate at the the actual barracks proper. And that's when it got really serious. When that bus rammed into the gate at the barracks on July 28, 1995, the government was already in the process of shutting down the base, and only 50 or so military personnel remained. Their commander immediately ordered them to evacuate as soon as possible to avoid a confrontation. The activists were a small breakaway group, and they called themselves Stony Pointers. Among them was 36-year-old Dudley George. Dudley's family was one of the original 18 families moved off the Stony Point Reserve in 1942. Dudley was born Anthony O'Brien George on March 17, 1957. 15 years after his family had been forced out. He was the eighth of 10 children. Life wasn't easy for the George family after moving to Kettle Point. Dudley brother Sam said the kids always knew it broke their parents' hearts to be taken off their land. And their lives seemed to spiral down after the move. The George family was plagued with alcohol and drug addiction, suicide, abuse, and tragically, their home burned to the ground Soon after the school bus incident, dozens of people from other First Nations reserves in Canada and the U.S. traveled to the Ipperwash Army Camp to support the Stony Pointers. They continued to peacefully occupy the Army Camp for the rest of the summer. But then word began to spread in the area that the activists planned to expand their occupation to Ipperwash Provincial Park, which was right next to the military camp. The rumor was they would wait until after the Labor Day weekend when the park would be mostly empty. And that's exactly what they did. Within hours of the park closing on Monday, September 4th, about 35 activists moved into the park, including Dudley George. The reason for the occupation was they claimed federal Indian agents did not represent the Chippewa properly when the land was sold to speculators in 1928 they reasserted their claim that the park contained sacred burial grounds, and they were unhappy that the burial grounds hadn't been fenced off as promised when Ipperwash Park was built in the 30s. Basically, this sacred land had been allowed to become a campground where families pitched tents and roasted marshmallows. About 12 uniformed police officers in cruisers pulled up near the front entrance of the park around 9.30 that night. 
Tensions were high. Many of the activists carried clubs, sticks, or tree branches, and one smashed the back window of a police car with a crutch. That's when police decided to withdraw from the park. They wanted to let things cool off for the night. The men, women, children, and elders who occupied the park built a fire near the camp store and quietly celebrated their victory by telling stories, drinking coffee, and smoking cigarettes. Meantime, the Ontario Provincial Police were busy setting up a command post in the nearby small town of Forest, Ontario. And at Queen's Park, the seat of Ontario's provincial government, Premier Mike Harris and his cabinet ministers were being made aware of the occupation. The next day, September 5th, 1995, Mike Harris attended a Pro-Am golf game at the PGA's Canadian Open, where he was paired up with Fred Couples. While the Premier was golfing, an emergency meeting of high-level officials was held near Queen's Park. Harris's aide, Deb Hutton, attended the meeting on his behalf. And according to testimony at an inquiry that took place 10 years later, Hutton was very assertive and told those at the meeting that the Premier wanted swift action to end the occupation. A high-level bureaucrat testified that Hutton said the Premier's views were quite hawkish on the issue and he did not want to get into negotiations with the occupiers. At no point in the meeting was it suggested that a negotiator should be appointed to meet with the activists to discuss their grievances. In the end, no decision was made at that meeting about what should be done. Meantime, back at Ipperwash Park, as night fell on day two, the occupiers moved 10 or 12 picnic tables from inside the park to a sandy parking lot just outside. They wanted to claim the area as part of their territory because it helped create a barricade so that no one else could access the park. Police tried to stop them from setting it up, and one officer even rammed his cruiser into a table. Later that night, two intelligence officers who were in charge of photographing what was happening at the park had a disturbing conversation. I'm going to play it for you, but a quick warning. The officers used painful and racist language towards the protesters. It was taped by their own cameras, and it was revealed later at an inquiry into the occupation. Still a lot of press down there? No, there's no one down there. This is big fat Indian. Camera's rolling. Yeah. We had this plan, you know. We thought if we could get five or six cases of uh, Labatt's 50, we could bait them. Yeah. Then we could have this big net at a pit. <laughs> Creative thinking. Works in the south with watermelon. As tensions grew at the park, the OPP called in its special paramilitary TRUE team. TRUE stands for Tactics and Rescue Unit. These guys are called in for extreme situations, like hostage takings and sniper attacks. Ten members of the unit were called in as backup in case frontline OPP officers needed any help. They were sent to another nearby provincial park to stand by just in case. The next day, following another meeting at Queen's Park, a decision was made to seek a court injunction to remove the protesters from the park as soon as possible. The Premier and several of his ministers gathered in the Premier's private dining room to discuss the situation just before noon on September 6th. It was less than 12 hours before the confrontation that would leave a protester dead at the hands of an OPP sniper. What exactly was said at this meeting would become the subject of much controversy for the next decade. But I'm going to leave that meeting for now. We'll get back to it in just a bit. 
Meanwhile, back at the park, police received a report in the early evening that would give them the reason they needed to make a move on the protesters. The problem was the information they received wasn't entirely accurate. The incident commander was told that a civilian's car traveling through the area had been damaged by protesters armed with automatic weapons. But here's what really happened. Gerald George, a Kettle and Stony Point band counselor who didn't approve of the protest, drove to Ipperwash to check out what was going on. He pulled up to the protesters in the sandy parking lot and asked for an update. But angry protesters yelled at him and threw a rock at his car. Gerald George drove to a police checkpoint in the area and reported the incident. Police say that Gerald told them protesters were armed with semi-automatic weapons and Molotov cocktails. Gerald later denied ever saying that. But either way, around this time, the OPP began arguing amongst themselves over what should be done next. It was finally decided to send in the crowd management unit, basically the riot squad. Their job was to clear the protesters from the parking lot by sending them back into the park. If they refused, they would be arrested. The true team, which had been waiting on standby, would be used to provide visuals and cover for the CMU. They were not to assume a tactical role. It was the first time that these two units were ever deployed together. Just before 10.30, 32 members of the CMU marched in a box formation down a dark road leading to the park. They were followed by an eight-officer arrest team, two canine teams, and two prisoner vans. As they approached the sandy parking lot, the officers lowered the face shields on their helmets. One of the first reporters on the scene that night was Peter Edwards from the Toronto Star. Uh, There was no cover. I mean, it was a totally open road and there was nowhere to to flee. Um, They said later that um, they feared that there were... There was a machine gun in the park, an AK-47. There's, there's no way in the world that any, any sane person would march with no cover directly into a machine gun. Like, they couldn't have believed that, and, um, and there was no machine gun. I mean, none of the police and none of the police vehicles and none of the houses and none of the trees were hit by bullets coming from the native side. And um, an AK-47 fires 600 bullets a minute, so there would have been something. He's the author of the book I mentioned earlier called One Dead Indian. Edwards said it never made sense for the OPP to send officers down a dark road if they truly believed the protesters were armed with semi-automatic guns, as they maintained. From the side of the road, Cattle and Stony Point Band Councillor Cecil Bernard George watched police in riot gear marching shoulder to shoulder towards the park. His sister, brothers, and friends were inside. George used a walkie-talkie to tell them police were coming and it didn't look good. As police approached the parking lot, occupiers turned on spotlights and shone them at officers. Some of the occupiers ran back into the park and armed themselves with sticks and rocks. The CMU officers moved into the parking lot and the last of the occupiers retreated into the park. At this point, the police mission was complete. The protesters were out of the parking lot. The police should have yelled into the park to let protesters know that if they stayed inside the park, there would be no confrontation. But that didn't happen. So protesters thought that the police were going to move into the park, and some of them began throwing rocks and burning sticks. This is when things took a terrible turn. 
41-year-old Cecil Bernard George, the band counselor who had radioed ahead, decided enough was enough. He was angry and frustrated that no police officers or anyone else had tried to talk to them about their concerns. He grabbed a steel pipe and decided to approach the OPP to talk to them. When he got near, someone gave the order to punch out. Officers began beating their batons on their shields and ran toward Cecil Bernard George. He swung at police with the pipe he was carrying, but he was quickly knocked down. Officers began kicking and hitting him with batons. George flailed his arms and kicked back. He said it was like being in the middle of a nightmare. He heard the sound of breaking glass, and he saw shadows all around hitting him. He thought they were determined to kill him. From inside the park, the occupiers watched in disbelief. George's sister Tina screamed in horror for somebody to do something. Fifteen occupiers moved from the park into the sandy parking lot in an effort to rescue Cecil Bernard George. Several altercations between police and the protesters took place simultaneously, but it was clear the occupiers would be overpowered easily. So someone yelled, get the school bus from inside the park. They thought the bus could be driven into the crowd of officers, splitting them up so Cecil George could be rescued. A 16-year-old boy named Nicholas Cottrell jumped into the bus, pushed away a dumpster, and plowed through the gate. The bus headed through the sandy parking lot towards the officers. Many of the officers climbed a fence. Others jumped into a ditch just to get away. The bus eventually came to a stop on its own, but then a car driven by activist Warren George came speeding out of the park and hit several police officers. They bounced off the hood and rolled onto the ground. Officers opened fire from multiple directions. 16-year-old Nicholas Cottrell heard the gunfire and then felt a burning pain in his back. He thought he'd been hit by one of the bullets. During all of this, true team members remained in their positions on the edge of the parking lot. Acting Sergeant Kenneth Dean, head of the True Team, would testify later at his trial that he saw muzzle flashes from the bush at the side of the road near the parking lot. He shot at the muzzle flashes and then moved forward. At that point, he said he saw a man walk onto the roadway with a firearm. That man was Dudley George. Officer Dean said George shouldered the rifle in a half-crouched position and scanned the officers. He believed George was milliseconds away from firing. So that's when Dean discharged three shots from his semi-automatic gun. He says George faltered and then spun around and threw his gun into the bush. But reporter Peter Edwards says there's no way that's how things happened. The angle of the bullet came into him. There was a a bullet that went through his collarbone downwards, um, through uh, ribs and then into his spine and... For that, the bullet to travel that angle, he'd have to be um, really contorted. And the at the inquiry, the um, what came across as the logical explanation was that he was hit in the back of of his calf. Um, there was a bullet wound there, and that he put his hand down from the opposite side onto the part of his calf where he was shot, and that suggests that he was running away, like he. The bullet hit his calf from behind, and he spun around to put his hand on the calf, and then he was shot. Several occupiers came out of the park and carried Dudley George away. They called 911, but police wouldn't let the ambulance enter the park because of safety concerns. 
After the car and bus returned to the park, a ceasefire was ordered by a police commander. The CMU officers returned to their tactical operations center, marching in a box formation covered by the true team members. Nicholas Cottrell, the teenage boy driving the bus, was transported to hospital by ambulance. It was believed he had a gunshot wound to the back, but it was later discovered that he had actually been hit by a piece of glass from a shattered bus window. He was treated and released from hospital within a few hours. Cecil Bernard George was transported to hospital by ambulance as well. He had multiple blunt force injuries to his head, face, arms, and stomach. He was treated and released from hospital the next day. Dudley George was the last to arrive at the hospital, driven there in a beat-up res car by his brother. Dudley's sister was also in the car along with his 14-year-old cousin. The young cousin was in the back seat with Dudley, and applied pressure to the gunshot wound in his left shoulder. On the way to the hospital, Dudley's brother Pierre was driving so fast he got a flat tire. But Pierre kept going, driving at full speed on the tire rim with sparks flying. When they arrived at the hospital, doctors attempted to resuscitate Dudley George, but he was pronounced dead shortly after arrival at 12.20 a.m. The next day, police issued a news release, which pointed the blame at the occupiers. They said they were called to the park after reports that armed protesters trashed a civilian car. Remember, it was really one person throwing a rock at a car as it drove away after a small altercation between a band counselor and protesters. Police went on to say they were peppered with rocks when they approached the park and that occupiers drove a bus and a car at them. They said the occupants from the vehicles opened fire on the officers who defended themselves by returning fire. The official statement by police didn't mention the beating of Cecil Bernard George by officers. The occupiers maintained they had no weapons in the park and they confronted police because they were trying to save Cecil Bernard George. Over the next few days, media and onlookers remained outside the park. Activists from reserves in London, Sarnia, and Brantford, Ontario, joined the original occupiers. And tensions remained extremely high. Protesters had no intention of backing down. The Grand Chief of Canada's Assembly of First Nations at the time was a soft-spoken man named Ovid Mekrady. He arrived at Ipperwash after the shooting to act as a mediator, and immediately called on Ontario's Premier Mike Harris to intervene in the standoff. The fact of the matter is that there's rights involved here and that the Premier of the province of Ontario has to get involved. Ultimately, the answer is with him as to whether or not there's a resolution to this dispute here. And he cannot carry on with the policy that Indian rights will be dealt with to the barrel of the gun. That's not acceptable to us as Indian people. Premier Mike Harris refused to get involved. As I've said on several occasions since the provincial park was seized, and I repeat today, these matters are in the hands of the Ontario Provincial Police and the Special Investigations Unit. Harris vowed he would not negotiate with the protesters until they ended their illegal occupation of Ipperwash Provincial Park. On September 11, 1995, five days after Dudley George was shot to death, 
Sacred fires were lit inside the former Ipperwash military camp beside Ipperwash Provincial Park. The occupation of the camp had begun six weeks earlier. Now, Dudley George was being laid to rest there, deep inside a forested area. Carloads and busloads of First Nations people came from many provinces and the United States to attend the funeral. Once inside Camp Ipperwash, the overflow waited outside the building where the service took place. Then they slowly marched down Army Camp Road to the Stony Point Cemetery, a decades-old resting place for the George family. There's a burial ground back there that, that's been there, but uh, uh, also the park has been there, their traditional burial ground. And uh, the older people have already, uh, already known that and they've already told us that. This is to be a traditional Chippewa ceremony led by spiritual leaders from their community. Gord Peters, the regional vice chief for the Assembly of First Nations, says the ceremony will help Mr. George on his way to the spirit world. The OPP stayed away from the funeral out of respect to the George family, and the only police on hand were Indigenous officers who displayed white flags on their squad cars. In July 1996, 10 months after the death of Dudley George, the officer involved, Acting Sergeant Ken Dean, was charged with criminal negligence causing death. The Special Investigations Unit, which investigates injuries and deaths caused by police, also looked into the beating of Cecil Bernard George. They interviewed about 50 police officers, but no one could or would identify which officers took part in the beating, so no charges were laid. When Acting Sergeant Ken Dean's trial began in April 1997, a hundred people packed the courtroom for the Crown's opening statement, including 40 members of Dudley George's family. Some were wearing T-shirts with Dudley's picture on it, and some had buttons that read, Remembering Dudley George. Others held eagle feathers. In his opening statement, Crown Attorney Ian Scott said that Dudley George was unarmed when he was shot. He said forensic testing found no gunpowder residue on his hands and that, in fact, none of the occupiers in the park were found to be armed. When Acting Sergeant Ken Dean took the stand, he maintained that Dudley George pointed a rifle at him and that's why the officer opened fire with his submachine gun. Dean showed no emotion as he testified that George managed to throw his weapon across a roadway into a bushy area after he was shot. Reporter Peter Edwards covered the trial, and he says there is no way that George could have thrown a rifle the way that Dean testified in court. To believe his version, Dudley George had to, who was 5'8 or 5'9, not a very big guy and not really that athletic, he had to to throw away his gun and throw it so far that the police couldn't retrieve it and also throw it when none of the police who had radios reported it. And so in a very close area, this guy would have had to have thrown his gun like a javelin when he's being fired upon after he'd been shot through his ribs and his collarbone and into the spine and somehow thrown it so far that nobody could retrieve it. And um, somehow nobody bothered to comment on that on the radio. So like, it just didn't bear out with logic. In closing arguments by the Crown and Defence, they painted two totally different pictures of Acting Sergeant Ken Dean. The Defence said that Dean was a conscientious officer protecting the OPP riot squad from an armed threat. The Crown, on the other hand, painted Dean as a rogue killer who took it upon himself to teach the occupiers some respect for police. 
Dean had opted out of a jury trial, so the decision was left up to one man. Justice Hugh Fraser would have to decide if Ken Dean knowingly shot an unarmed man. The day the verdict was read, the courtroom was packed with George's family and friends, along with police officers supporting Ken Dean. At the front of the room, the head of the OPP, Thomas O'Grady, sat right next to Ovid Mercredi, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. The judge ordered the doors be locked to prevent any interruptions and told spectators if they made any noise, they would be asked to leave. Then he read his judgment. He said, I find that Dudley George did not have any firearms on his person when he was shot. I find that the accused Kenneth Dean knew that George was not armed and the story of the rifle and the muzzle flashes was concocted after the fact in an ill-fated attempt to disguise the fact that an unarmed man had been shot. Judge Fraser finished by saying to Acting Sergeant Ken Dean, I find, sir, that you were not honest in presenting your version of events to the OPP investigators and the SIU. You were not honest in maintaining the ruse before this court. I have considered all of the evidence presented in this case, and on the basis of the evidence that I have accepted, I find you, Kenneth Dean, guilty as charged. Reporter and author Peter Edwards was in the court when the judge handed down his verdict. When he said, I find you are not an honest man, it just went quiet for three or four seconds, and then there was um, a lot of crying. It was quite something, because there, there were a few seconds there where there was absolutely no noise whatsoever. The silence was eventually broken when someone from George's group of family and friends let out a loud cheer. Then others began to sob. Ken Dean stared straight ahead and showed no emotion. When the judge read the decision on sentencing a month later, six young Indigenous men gathered outside the courthouse with drums to play a traditional song of remembrance. The rhythmic beating of their drums could be heard inside the packed courtroom as the sentencing was read. The maximum penalty that Dean could receive was life in prison, but at the time, there was no mandatory minimum sentence required for criminal negligence causing death. So, essentially, he could receive no jail time. Once again, that was up to the judge. Before handing down his sentence, Justice Hugh Fraser pointed out that Dean and other True Team officers had been incorrectly briefed that the activists occupying the park were armed with semi-automatic weapons. He went on to say the responsibility of the late-night tragedy could not be brought to rest solely on the shoulders of Ken Dean. Then Judge Fraser sentenced Dean to a conditional sentence of two years less a day to be served in the community, not behind bars. It took a couple of seconds for the sentence to sink in. Then Dudley's family and friends began to cry, and some shouted murderer, and some said he was a rotten cop. Outside the courthouse, Dudley supporters were in shock. They were angry and they cried and hugged each other. But Dudley's sister Pam was still a little happy that the trial had cleared her brother's name. He wasn't the armed sniper that the OPP tried to paint him out to be. And Dudley's brother Sam said the comment by the judge that Dean was not solely responsible for the tragedy that night highlighted the need for a full public inquiry into what really happened at Ipperwash Provincial Park and why police were sent into the park in the first place. After the trial, Dean was relieved of operational duties and he was assigned to administrative work. 
He remained a police officer while the case worked its way through the appeals process. And then finally, in January 2002, after his final appeal was dismissed, Dean was forced to resign by a police tribunal. At the tribunal hearing, Dean apologized to the George family, and he said he would have done it sooner, but his lawyers had advised him not to. He said he didn't appear remorseful because he had internalized what happened, but he said he was indeed remorseful for what happened that night. He said, when you take a human life, it's a tragic incident, and he will carry it for the rest of his life. Five years later, in 2006, Kenneth Dean was killed when his car was struck by a tractor trailer. He was 45 years old. In the years following the death of Dudley George, the Mike Harris government was continuously pressured to hold a full public inquiry to uncover what led up to the violent confrontation. The opposition at Queen's Park wanted to know if Mike Harris pressured the police to move into the park the night George was killed, and they believed an inquiry was the only way to get to the bottom of it. Plus, there were some rumors floating around that Premier Mike Harris had used some choice language during one of those meetings at Queen's Park. It was believed that he had said, I want those effing natives out of the park. In many ways, lingering questions about this man's death, Dudley George, continue to haunt the Conservative government. And today, another chapter. The George family has filed a wrongful death lawsuit naming former Premier Mike Harris and several senior Conservative ministers. The family has long alleged that the police faced political interference at the highest levels, interference that contributed to the death of George at Ipperwash Provincial Park. Dudley's brother Sam was the point person for the George family on the wrongful death lawsuit. He was also tireless in his quest for a public inquiry. He spoke to church and labor groups, First Nations assemblies, students, teachers, human rights groups, and just about anyone else who would listen. He sometimes had to sleep in his car, which he nicknamed the Truth Mobile, because he couldn't afford a hotel room. Even Amnesty International and the United Nations called for an inquiry. But Mike Harris, he wouldn't budge. He refused to hold hearings. Then in 2003, nearly eight years since the events at Ipperwash, the Conservatives were voted out of power. And they were replaced by the Liberal Party, headed by Dalton McGuinty. And he quickly called a public inquiry into the death of Dudley George. The inquiry began in April 2004. It was held at a community centre in the small town of Forest, Ontario, which wasn't too far from Ipperwash Provincial Park. Seeking the truth is what the George family is determined to learn from this long-awaited inquiry. George's brother Sam told reporters he hopes to find out what really happened to his younger brother. It's been a long um, trail, a long process for us to get to this point. This is where we wanted to be eight and a half years ago. So now we're finally here and we're going to go in and we're going to start to find out the truth of what really happened at Ipperwash. The head of the public inquiry, Commissioner Sidney Linden, warned that old wounds may be reopened during the process, but he went on to say it may also help the family heal and move on with their lives. For the next 26 months, Justice Sidney Linden heard evidence from nearly 150 witnesses. Sam George sat in the front row throughout the entire two-year process, bearing witness for his brother Dudley. 
Sam and the rest of the public finally got to hear from some of the people involved in making decisions at Queen's Park, including several high-level bureaucrats who attended those emergency meetings held on September 5th and 6th, 1995. In November 2005, the Premier's aide, Deb Hutton, was called to testify at the inquiry. It was the first time the public would hear from someone within the Mike Harris inner circle. On the stand, Hutton denied telling the emergency meeting held the day after the occupation began that protesters should be evicted from the park as quickly as possible and that police should use guns if necessary. Hutton spent two and a half days on the stand giving approximately 18 hours of testimony. But during that time, she was unable to shed much light on what took place or what was said because she was unable to remember any comments by her boss, the premier, on September 4th, 5th, and 6th about the occupation. Under cross-examination, the lawyer representing Aboriginal Legal Services said his staff tallied 134 times that Hutton testified that she couldn't recall things while on the witness stand. He sarcastically asked her if she had a medical condition or uses medication. The next major player to take the stand was former Attorney General Charles Harnick. On the first day, he testified that it was absolutely absurd to suggest he received instructions from the Premier to remove the protesters from the park within 24 hours. When Harnick took the stand the following Monday, he caught everyone, and I mean everyone, off guard when he dropped a major bombshell. He was asked about the meeting that occurred in the Premier's private dining room on the day that Dudley George was shot and killed. Harnick testified as he walked into the meeting, he heard something shocking. Premier in a loud voice said, I want the fucking Indians out of the park. Harnick said he was stunned by the comment and everyone in the dining room went quiet for a few seconds. Reporters and spectators at the inquiry were equally shocked by the testimony. Some reporters arrived late and they missed Harnick's testimony and they couldn't believe he had actually thrown his former boss under the bus. Finally, in February 2006, 23 months after the inquiry began, former Premier Mike Harris took the stand. He was the 100th witness at the inquiry and possibly the most anticipated. He arrived at the inquiry surrounded by six plainclothes police officers and four of his lawyers. He squeezed through a crowd of over 50 members of the media and about 100 mostly Indigenous people who packed the public gallery. On the stand, Harris's voice was even and controlled, and his answers were direct. He denied ever telling his assistant, Deb Hutton, that he wanted the occupiers removed as soon as possible. But he conceded that she may have extrapolated that from his previous utterances. He calmly testified that he absolutely did not say, I want the effing Indians out of the park, or any words to that effect. When asked if he would do anything differently if he could go back to September 1995, Harris replied, I don't think so. Sam George and his family have waited almost 12 years for this moment through political battles at Queen's Park and a two-year, $20 million inquiry into the death of his brother Dudley from an OPP bullet. At the end of May in 2007, the judge overseeing the inquiry released a four-volume, 1,500-page report. About 200 people gathered at the community center where the inquiry took place to listen as Justice Linden revealed his conclusions. 
The inquiry's key question, did Mike Harris and his government pressure the provincial police into a deadly confrontation with native protesters occupying disputed land at Ipperwash Provincial Park? The evidence does not support the claim that he interfered with the OPP's operation. But Lyndon also found that Harris's push for a quick resolution cut off options for negotiation. And then there was the matter of the allegation that the Premier said at a key meeting, get the effing Indians out of the park. I have found that both the former Premier and the Minister of Natural Resources made racist comments. Harris, via his lawyer, was defiant. Lyndon also said, Ipperwash revealed a deep schism in Canada's relationship with Indigenous people and was symbolic of a sad history of government policies that harmed their long-term interests. He said, The inexcusable delay and long neglect by successive federal governments to deal with land claims are at the heart of the Ipperwash story. Lyndon urged the federal government to return the former army camp to the Cattle and Stony Point people and compensate them for the delay in returning the land. He also urged the provincial government to create a Ministry of Indigenous Affairs and set up a treaty commission for Ontario, an independent and impartial agency to deal with land claims. The Premier of Ontario at the time of the report was still Dalton McGuinty. He quickly apologized for the death of Dudley George on behalf of the provincial government. And later that year, the Ontario government established a Ministry of Indigenous Affairs. But a treaty commission was never established. According to the Ministry of Indigenous Affairs, government and First Nation representatives were unable to agree on what a treaty commission should achieve. It took nearly another decade, but the land at Ipperwash was finally returned to the Kettle and Stony Point First Nation in 2016. As part of the handover, the band was also given $95 million in compensation from the federal government. $20 million went directly to families and ancestors, while the rest will be used for future development of the land. But before that land is developed, it must undergo an environmental cleanup, which involves removing unexploded grenades. The cleanup is expected to take about 20 years to complete. In the meantime, people continue to live at Camp Ipperwash. Here's Monica Virtue. People are living in the original army barracks that were built in 1942. They're full of asbestos. I mean, I've been inside a number of them, and there's giant holes in the ceiling where rain just pours in. Uh, some of them are be- beautifully decorated inside, but others are in very rough shape. Like to the extent where I worry about people in the winter, that they're going to be safe. And I worry that because there's not clean drinking water, it's always in the back of my head that something bad might happen. Among those living at the barracks is Dudley's brother, Pierre George. He helped to design a monument for Dudley, which was erected at the former Ipperwash Provincial Park. Monica says he continues his fight to raise awareness about treaty issues. Dudley's brother, Sam, passed away from cancer in 2009, But before he did, he said this in an interview. We want Dudley to be the last person to die in a dispute over First Nations territories. Dudley has left to the spirit world, and we can only thank him for what he did for the First Nations people at Kettle and Stony Point. But one life lost is one too many, and one cannot put a price on a person's life, especially since all life is sacred. 
Thanks for joining me on this look back at the troubling story of the Ipperwash crisis. And thanks to my guests, Monica Virtue and Peter Edwards, for helping us understand what happened and why. Their contact information will be in the show notes. If you have any show ideas, please let me know. I always love hearing from you about ideas or whatever's on your mind. You can reach me through Twitter at 1990s History. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can email me directly at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, feel free to rate and review us. You can find us for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. And you can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Gonzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.